Hey there, this is Michael Rocco, and you're listening to Our Best Interests, a podcast dedicated to pursuing an examined life following childhood trauma. We'll explore the painful and the joyous parts of life. The focus is on the adoptee experience, but general lessons about humanity are at the center of our explorations. We'll drop new episodes as guests come by to see us. There are many interesting characters with interesting stories in our community. So we're sure to learn a few things and enjoy ourselves a bit too. Now get ready to take a deep dive into the core issues of self, family, and society from the adoptee perspective. I think we should walk away I saw you through the glass door And I was acting on my best behavior Trying to navigate us home Welcome back to Our Best Interests. I'm Michael Rocco. In this episode, we're honored to welcome Barbara Sumner, filmmaker and author of the memoir, Tree of Strangers which was published by Massey University Press just last year. Jack, my friend, good to see you. You too, Michael, how are you? Great, you know, I really enjoyed speaking with Barbara. Oh, now it was, I guess, two weeks ago. Um, took me a little time to get through the editing. But, um, you know, it, she has so many interesting things to say. She's profound, I think, and certainly a great writer. Absolutely. So how did you meet her? I, you know, I contacted her, um, you know, through Instagram and, you know, we just kind of hit it off with, with just some communication back and forth. And, um, you know, I had picked up her book, uh, along the way. And, um, you know, so we just were communicating back and forth on that. Yeah, it's, it's a good book. So we're recording this after the fact, because we had to add a few details in due to some recording issues, as you know. I, I had to cut a lot of you out, buddy. There's nothing personal, I promise. I, I can take it. <laughs> no but, you know, this gives us an opportunity to, to uh, give a little bit of a few clues um, about what happens in our conversations. She has so many good lines, and I picked out a couple of them that I thought would be cool to look out for as we, as we go through. Uh, the first one was, she says... Uh, uh, in regards to her understanding of her adoption as a child, she phrases it like this. It was a strange kind of knowing, which I thought was really interesting, you know, that, that she'd learned to, uh, to understand her adoption over a long period of time, as a lot of us do. I thought that was mm-hmm. interesting way to put it. Another one, as you know, we talked about this was, how do you boil a frog? Right. <laughs> I can't believe you've not heard that, uh, that analogy. I, I love it. I just looked it up, and I didn't know that if you throw a frog into a pot of boiling water, it's apt to jump out, so you don't get a boiled frog in the end. But there, there you go. I learned something there. The last one was she says. Um, she says 
the unexpressed grief we carry through. And she's describing here severance and its legacy that goes not only through one's life, but is passed down to one's children. So, you know, she has really interesting things to say. And those were just in conversation. So many good nuggets in the book. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, she's she's very in touch with uh, the whole concept and herself and her feelings on it. And, um, you know, I know me personally, uh, I think I'm trying to figure it out a little bit. I think, you know, you seem to be figuring it out a little bit, but she seems to be a few uh, classes ahead of us in the, uh, the adoption seminar. <laughs> so I think we both agree she's a hell of a writer and a really cool person. Yes. Guiding our discussion today will be the adage, never trouble trouble till trouble troubles you. Advice issued by John Adams, the second president of the United States, that it also appeared in Benjamin Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac. And some version of the saying goes all the way back to the Roman writer Seneca. The general idea is that one ought not poke at tender spots, lest Pandora's box become unhinged, leading to the need to manage mayhem. Yeah. Barbara is going to give us a bit about the context of her adoption to help us better understand the excerpt from her book that she'll be sharing with us in a few moments. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you. Can you tell Jack and I a bit about where you live now and what you do? Right. Hi. Um, I live in New Zealand in a small town on the east coast of the North Island. Um, I'm a, a documentary filmmaker and I was a journalist and now I'm working as an author writing. I've, I've done this memoir, of course, and I'm doing a novel at the moment and then starting another nonfiction um, later this year. So I've, um, I wrote my memoir, which I finished uh, early last year and it came out in September. Uh, it's now on its second and almost ready for its third reprint, which is fantastic given that it is a subject that isn't that popular in terms of the general conversation. We don't like to talk a lot about adoption. Yeah. And I think particularly in this country where at one point we, we were taking more children per head of population than any other country. I'm just finishing a novel right now, which is uh, set in 1912, um, but it also has themes, the same kinds of themes, while it's not about adoption. It has a lot of the themes of disconnection that we understand as adopted people. And I'm about to start a, um, a, uh, a new nonfiction that is part of a PhD thesis. So Barbara is going to share with us uh, just a short outline of her personal adoption story to give us some context uh, for the reading and the subsequent discussion. My adoption was very typical of the time. I was born in 1960, may have been 1959. It depends which um, document you read. There seems to be some discrepancy there. My mother was single. She got pregnant in, the, in London, uh, came out to New Zealand pregnant. Her parents had just immigrated here. And when they discovered her state, they threw her out. So she was very much a new immigrant alone in a country with, where she knew nobody. She ended up in the house of a doctor, in fact, just along the road from where we're living now, where she was, not just her, other women it happened to as well, but essentially incarcerated 
in the doctor's house, taking care of his children, doing his housework, while he was arranging the, uh, to take her child. So she was never given any support to parent. There was never an op opportunity for her to uh, take care of her child. Um, the doctor, in, in fact, in my particular instance, the doctor's nurse had a sister who wanted a child who, could, who was infertile. So I was chosen to be that cure for that infertility, I guess you could say. And I, I mean, I think in New Zealand, most, for all, for all, you know, we talk about it here as forced adoption. I've given evidence at, um, in select committees in the government, which is all about forced adoption. Um, because for the child, of course, all adoption is forced. No child chooses to uh, be separated and severed from their mother for life. It's and their ancestors and everything that makes them unique. So, yeah, my story is very typical. It has its own moments of, um, of individuality, but I think all of us have the same internal experience, even when our external is different. And did you have siblings growing up? I did. I had an adopted brother. Um, you'll notice in the book that he's not mentioned. I don't, uh, there's nothing about him in the book. And my reason for that was that his experience of adoption as a boy in, a fam in this family was different to mine. So I did not want to tell his story. I felt that it was his business to tell his own story. Now, you've always known you were adopted, is that right? Well, I don't remember being told, so I guess I was. I have always known. However, it was a strange kind of knowing because you're not, we were not allowed to speak about it. There was nowhere to take that knowledge. There was, you know, they knew nothing, supposedly. In fact, I subsequently found out not that long ago that they knew a lot of things and that there was, wasn't particularly honest or truthful. When did that be it become clear to you that this was something to figure out and manage? It's a very good question because I think like that, you know, like how do you, how do you boil a frog? You do it very slowly, and, and it's that slow, that slow immersion into adoption and where there is no alternative. You, you don't, I mean, for me, it was so all-encompassing that I didn't think of adoption as being separate from me. I was the good girl in every way. Then I became a teenager, and I became the opposite of that. I became a very badly behaved person. And, of course, there's that thing that happens with adoption that, when I behaved well, it was because my, you know, my parents were really great at parenting. And when I behaved bad, it was my bad genes. And of course, we grow up and have our own kids. How did being an adoptee figure into it? I, I think when I got into, you know, I had, I had children very young. Um, I think I said in the book, I can't remember, but I know that um, it really was a way not to die because I felt that I felt so disconnected from anything that was substantial. I didn't, I was floating in space because I didn't belong anywhere. Um, and the children were a way of, of anchoring me. And about that time, you know, just when I was pregnant with my third child, I started to realize I had some issues and I started to look for my mother. And, you know, we can read about it in the book, the process of, by which I found her 
Um, some of it was, uh, you know, very kind of straightforward and some of it was quite mystical. And, yeah, and then the events that happened after I found her. How did you eventually track down your mother? Was there somebody there to help you? Uh, a friend of my mother's who had known her, one little piece of information about my life, one tiny dropped, dropped fact that uh, became lodged in my memory without me realizing it. And one day it came back to me. Apropos of nothing, I just suddenly remembered that my adopting mother's sister, who was actually turned out to have been the doctor's nurse, they were sitting having a conversation over a cup of coffee and I was standing in the hallway. I'm like 13 or 14 years old, behaving badly. And my aunt, my adopting aunt, adopted aunt says to my adopting mother, well, you know, of course she's behaving badly. You know, her mother was a model and, you know, a terrible person and made these very disparaging comments. No one had ever mentioned that I even had a mother aside from my adopter before. And I kind of put that away in my young teenage brain. And that came back to me in my early 20s. Now, so you, you have uh, somebody who knows your mother from her modeling days. You've, you're in contact with her. And what is the next step that gets you to actually arrange a meeting with your mother? This woman, Jeannie, calls my mother, calls her, uh, finds my mother again, takes her a little while to find out where she is. My mother's living in Madrid. She contacts my mother, and there are two, she has two other daughters who are 10, 9 and 11 years younger than me. And according to what Jeannie told me, my mother then went, you know, oh, my God, this is, you know, she just actually already hired the week before a private detective in New Zealand to try and find me. So... Then she gets on a plane to come to New Zealand. And, and of course, then the, the unthinkable happens and the plane crashes and she's killed. Now here's Barbara with her excerpt from the book, Tree of Strangers. Thank you. This is from chapter eight. At the reception desk, the motel woman was reading a newspaper. I asked if there was anything about a plane crash. She shook her head, then remembered. On the radio, in Spain, something about fog. Lots of survivors, though. She looked at her watch and turned on the radio. The beeps for the news sounded. Two Spanish jet liners, liners collided in heavy fog on a takeoff runway here this morning, killing about 90 people and injuring more than 30 of the approximately 45 survivors. Jeannie was wrong. Surely my mother would have survived, but I knew she was dead. Something had changed, the lulling of a violin string in the moments after the note dies away. Our bodies are echo chambers. We know things that make no sense. Today, the science says we leave tiny pieces of ourselves in each other. Microchimeric cells slip across the placenta during pregnancy. In Greek mythology, a chimera is a shape-shifting creature. Fetal microchimeric cells left in the mother can migrate through her blood. In rat models, they have been seen to change, the sh to change shape as they rush to assist in healing a mother's injured heart. None of us is as singular or autonomous as we like to think. My mother had held a filament of me within her body, and now even that tenuous thread was broken. Today I am comforted and wowed by the science. 
But back then, all I felt was the weight of knowledge. I had wanted this one thing so badly, I had caused a catastrophe. Mavis calibrated her goodness through phrases and sayings. Uncomfortable questions always elicited the same response. Never trouble trouble till trouble troubles you. You'll only trouble trouble and trouble others too. I was always the one who troubled trouble. An actor who breaks through the fourth wall and speaks directly to the camera. I had dared to step out of my assigned role. I had sought Pamela, my mother, out, and now she was dead. I had taken my brokenheartedness and passed it on to others, those poor girls. I stared at the motel woman. Is it worse to lose all hope or never to have had it in the first place? I thought I saw a tear forming in her dry eyes. She frowned. Your children are hungry, she replied. I'm on the other side of hope, I said, but she had already turned away. I'm so sorry, Barbara. So that meeting that we were about to have never happened. I always think of it as being like my mother died twice because she died the first time. For the, for the newborn baby, the loss of the mother is a death. And so to me, she died at that point. And then again, of course, again, 23 years later. That had she died, literally died on the day I was born, they would have swaddled me in sadness and a child of sorrow and loss, and I would have been comforted by that shared grief. And all of us as adopted people, had our mothers died at our birth, we would have been treated as very special cases. People would have gone, oh, my God, that's a tragedy. How awful. But as adopted people, of course, they go, oh, how wonderful that you were adopted. Wow, how lucky you are. And we are denied that that place within us of being able to grieve. And I think that unexpressed grief we carry through. So for me, it was that my mother died. She died again. And it is like the opposite of Easter, I guess, because she came alive for three days from our first, first uh, genie's first phone call. And then the next one, three days later, while I'm waiting um, in a motel near the airport, waiting to go and meet with her. Yeah. You lost your mother twice. I think that what happens is that you are, if you, you sever it, you sever that relationship with not just with the mother, but with all of your history in such a way that it is, it is forever. It is, a, it is a forever severing, not just while you're a child and in need of care, but into your adulthood, past your death, and, and the new the new family tree is handed down to your children and grandchildren. What I used to feel was that even when my, and I began to feel this when my first child was born and she was the first person I'd seen that I was related to. And as I was signing her birth certificate, I realized that I was, it was a lie because I wasn't signing as me. I was signing as this person with this new identity that had been given to me. And I feel like adoption, a closed adoption does that. It turns us all into less than truthful, I guess, because we don't have, we don't have the truth that's denied to us. And adoption, particularly closed adoption, is full of secrets. Every family, it doesn't matter what their makeup, every family has secrets. But the, for an adopted person, those secrets are... They're not just something that, you know, great uncle so-and-so did that no one wants to talk about. 
they are they go all the way back you have everything about you is a secret and everything that you know about you has been grafted onto you i guess through your adoption and so you are in new zealand we have two birth certificates you have your original birth certificate which is sealed and then you have the the second one which is your adopt one with your adopters on it so the the second birth certificate has your adopter's names as birth parents, despite the fact that there's a little piece at the bottom of the certificate that says that it is illegal to falsify, legal under the Crimes Act to falsify these details. But as we know, many things with adoption, there's always a, you know, an extra. What the, um, the births, deaths and marriages people court say here and the lawyers say here is that your first, your first birth certificate is a um, uh, essentially ornamental. And the second one that you have is considered a legal fiction. So somewhere between essentially ornamental and legal fiction is where we exist. Neither of those are real places. You know, they're both, that place between is like an empty, an empty well. You can't, where do you go with that when you are essentially ornamental and a legal fiction? There is no absolute, there is no truth to it, and everything becomes a secret. You were tragically unable to connect with your birth mother, but you did get to uh, get in contact with your siblings. Was there any genetic mirroring there? I mean, nobody got me as I was growing up. I didn't have, it was a very poor family, so there was no access to any, to education, for instance. If I once, I remember once suggesting that I'd like to go to university and my male adopter saying, oh, you're getting ideas above your station there. You know, it was that was very much that understanding that we didn't do. We weren't those kind of people. But I was that kind of person. And, you know, only I only found my father a few years ago through DNA. He'd already passed away, but I discovered I had a sister who'd also passed away. And at the same time that I was writing, um, I was writing, um, I was a journalist for quite a long time. So I was writing columns, I was writing feature articles for magazines in New Zealand. And she was writing in London for The Face and The Guardian. And she was writing the same kind of things that I was writing, but in a bigger field because she you know, had access to that. And I managed to get hold of some, it was pre-internet, but I managed to get hold of some of her writing and it could be my writing our cadence, our sentence structures, our words were very, the way we used words was incredibly similar. And at one point I thought I was reading something I'd written, but in fact, she had written it. So, you know, it, I get, you know, I'm sure you know, in adoption circles, we talk about mirroring that whole where, and we often use it for physical things. You know, you have the same earlobes as somebody in your family, the same nose, the same chin, the whatever. But I think mirroring goes far deeper than that. It is, a, it is that essence, that, that echo of each other that we feel. I mean, I, I look at my daughters and we don't actually look that alike, but there are so many echoes of the way we think about the world and the way we process the things that happen to us. And none of that was, was a part of my growing up experience. Do you have any closing thoughts on our adage? They would use that. I mean, my, my adopters 
expressed uh, emotion or um, uh, and un their understanding of the world through adages. It was a very common thing. And I think that's common for many of us. But this one in particular, she used a lot with me because anything that I, I mean, I was seen, if I was seen to do things, they would cause a problem. So asking about my mother was troubling trouble. And uh, my reason for including this in the book and uh, is because I did this thing. I, I did. I found my mother and that did cause a trouble. She got on the next plane and that she, after she'd found that I had been found and came, tried to come to New Zealand and that caused, I mean, it caused her death. So, I mean, I know my rational brain knows that I'm not responsible for a plane crash that was an air traffic control uh, problem in fog, in fog as one flight is taking off on the runway. But the other part of my brain, that kind of, you know, the more lizard part of my brain, I guess, feels that I caused my mother's death, that I did this thing, that I, I troubled trouble and caused a problem that has been, I mean, a tragedy as it were, a personal tragedy. You can find Barbara Sumner's book, Tree of Strangers, on Amazon. The link is in the show notes. For those of you in New Zealand, and of course we have fans in New Zealand, Jack. Of course we do, plenty. Uh, in Aotea, Aotea, I think, you know, land of the long white cloud, they say. Uh, Barbara will be speaking at the Auckland Writers Festival on Saturday, May 15th at 12 p.m. That will be in the limelight room of the Aotea. You, you say it, Jack. Aotea. Aotea. The Aotea <laughs> Center. That's what I said. <laughs> Forget Jack, about it's... it. <laughs> Aotea. Forget about it. Jack, it's been fun. Thank you, Michael. And Always a pleasure. We have another. We have another great show coming up. Uh, as soon as I can get to it, we'll we'll get that edited and on air. Brad Yule, he's a fantastic. He was a fantastic interview. I appreciate that as well. Brad Yule coming up next time. Take care. On the Fourth of July, doesn't like the fireworks. All those explosions in the sky make it Paranoid as nature Take a bottle from the back room Negotiate a fair price Just to try and get away with it I think he was just being nice And I was acting on my best behavior Trying to 